0: Welcome
1: to an hour of our time. Today we're going to continue our conversation from last week about audio recording, except it's going to be a little bit more holistic. We'll talk a bit about the changing of audio recording processes from analog to digital over the decades. We'll talk a little bit about the different ways that people are listening to music today. And we'll discuss some of our significant personal experiences with music. I'm Dave. And I'm Mark. And we're joined by our special guest, audio engineer and producer, Jay Alton.
2: Hey, hey, thanks for having me.
1: Well, what's been going on with you, Jay?
2: Well, I've been hanging out with some little kids lately. I got a, uh, I got my yeah. third, my third boy that uh, showed up in October. So I've been doing that, and then I've been pretty busy with work too. So it's been kind of nonstop for me lately. Well, that's that's good. I haven't seen you in a
1: while. I guess it's, I guess I've seen you a little bit because we've been borrowing microphones and things throughout the
2: summer, but that's been pretty brief. Yeah, I think I probably the last time we really talked was finishing up the the EP, the costumes EP, in the fall, which was right when uh, my latest baby was born.
1: Yeah, well, I guess that kind of brings us right to sort of introducing you to the audience. So, Jay, um, I'll have you talk about yourself and your background a little bit, but let me start by saying, and I mentioned this in the last episode, but uh, Joe and I play together in a band called Dave Buker and the Historians, and Mark played with us for a while as well and obviously knows Jay, too. Uh, Jay has been producing and recording our music for over 10 years now so um, you know we all sort of dabble in audio production but Jay is the is the master we we look to him for for guidance and um, whenever we're working on projects that's what we're who we're working with and and he mentioned the costumes EP of cover songs we did this summer we actually did all of that remotely uh, where we were all recording individually in our own homes we borrowed some microphones from jay and then we would send him tracks and he he mixed and mastered it so we continued to work with jay and that was a very different experience i think for for all of us um, we learned a lot and uh jay was able to put it together despite the fact that we couldn't be in the same room which is very very strange so so i guess with that jay can you tell everybody a little bit about you know your background and and maybe why this
2: topic for you. So I am a sound engineer. Uh, I got into music from an early age and I was just kind of always into music and recording. Like I was just fascinated with tape recorders and I just thought guitars were cool. So I kind of grew up in a place to where um, I was making music to some extent since I was a little kid and then ultimately, um, started learning guitar and taking lessons. And that led to writing music and getting a four track and playing in bands. And that led to recording other bands. And then, you know, by the time I was in high school, you start thinking about what you're going to do with your life. And at that point, I, I was listening to a lot of music on CDs at that, at that point in time. Um, so I kind of grew up in the, the 90s and Mm -hmm. uh and i realized that all the cds were made by people that have jobs (laughs) so i was kind of like oh (laughs) that's interesting um and being somebody who is like i'm kind of a math and science person that also likes arts so and music so it kind of made a lot of sense to go into this path um So, yeah, and then as far as school, I went to Capital University and studied music technology. So it was pretty intensive music focus there, um, playing guitar, studying composition. um, And then I was pretty heavily involved doing internships in some different studios in town while I was in college as well. Um, So, yeah, by the time I graduated school, I was already freelancing and building up a client list of bands and... It's really just been a slow build of working on projects. Really, since since I was in college, like I was slowly building up um, projects and just kind of trying to get better at what I do, and then trying to, you know, do great on one job so I can get the next job. Um, so that's kind of how it works as an engineer. Is like your business card is basically like the last record you did, or you know or the worst record you did you know so it's kind of like everything <laughs> you need to do needs to be awesome and better than the last thing um cuz that's going to lead to whatever the next jobs are um yeah and, so and that, you've been
1: doing you've been doing some like field more field recording kind of stuff lately too
2: right yeah and i do that's kind of the other world i'm in so i'm pretty heavily involved producing albums for bands and then i'm also pretty heavily involved in location sound for video so I do a lot of on location sound for documentaries, for um, commercials, for TV shows, um, just all sorts of different videos. So that kind of stuff is out in the field where I'll have a you know location sound kit, I'll have all sorts of boom microphones, wireless mics, um, and I work with different video cameras. And um, so I'm pretty in that world as well and i and i've been doing that just as long that was it's kind of always just grown alongside um my music recording and that and that similarly stems from an interest early on that i had in making videos and it's like i i grew up and i was the kid with a video camera when i was like eight years old just videoing everything and making movies with my friends and doing all that so it was a pretty logical thing when I was learning sound engineering to try to figure out how to do that like originally I'm just like I just need to learn how to do that because because that's a job and it's something I like it'd be fun um and I feel like some of that kind of spins into music making too to where I've kind of learned to get comfortable in different locations to where i like working in different environments whereas i think some people think more about hey i want a controlled studio environment which is nice sometimes but but i've sort of learned to be comfortable in different environments and then try to exploit the environments and get some of that into the recording like just because it's it makes for them to be more interesting you know So Mm -hmm. I've done some albums in cabins, churches, rooms, different houses. Didn't we record once in a library? We recorded in a library. That's correct. And I think that's fun because it's, you know, with recording, so much of what you do has to do with the room. And I think like back in the day, like pre-multi-track recording, kind of getting into like history of recording and technology and stuff the rooms had an even bigger place because you didn't have multi-track recording, So the band was probably in a shared space. It was all being tracked live. So the room was even more important than, you know, in, in the world, like in the 70s, they started isolating stuff more. And, and like clo- close-miking more? Yeah, close-miking. So like there was a point where it kind of got away from that a little bit in the '70s and '80s, to where it was more about close mics and isolating, and less about kind of the organic nature of a room. Sure. I'm you know, playing live, um, that's not everything, but just sort of in general, that's kind of as technology changed with multi-track recording, that kind of drove studios into that direction a little bit. But um, that's a long that's a long answer. That's my life
1: <laughs> right there. So this is all to say that if if when you send me your audio for this, if it sounds terrible, you yeah, should feel especially bad.
2: I should quit my job and look, <laughs> get another job for sure. That's why I'm like, I got to make sure it's good, you know? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. So. I hope I picked <laughs> I, the right mic for this, you know? <laughs>
1: I have no doubt. So, you know, last week we talked more, it was a bit more of our, our typical episode where it was a chronological history of... Audio recording, sort of up until, I don't know where we left off exactly, Mark, but we kind of got up to.
3: Probably around the CDs. Well,
1: kind of, but we didn't talk a lot about stuff that was happening in the 70s, 80s. We kind of like left off the actual history maybe around the 40s when the LP became standard. We didn't get into like stereo versus mono or things like that. And I want us to keep in mind that people listening may not have a background in in audio recording so i guess with that jay where where do you want to start how do you want to go with this conversation because like you said in our emails you know maybe something more holistic we definitely don't have to draw a straight line i think down this history anymore
2: i always find it interesting to think about like what drives some of these inventions and these innovations which like you guys kind of got into a little bit but it's Thinking about inventions, mm-hmm. you know, why, why does somebody build them? What's the, what's that initial drive and why does it change? And like early on, you know, it's like finding out that first like wax cylinder, maybe it's just a crazy inventor who's like experimenting with science. But then as you get further and further down, down that path, you know, it's like somebody, you know, inventing streaming, you know, or. Right. You know, maybe that's a just a programmer who's coming up with a new algorithm and you have the internet. I don't know. So it, I, I just find that that pretty interesting and like th- that's just more of an observation listening to you guys.
1: Yeah, I know that there was a the story we talked about with magnetic tape where that sort of came about somewhat haphazardly. Just, you know, somebody working in a shop thought this might work, found that it did and then was kind of like, well, I don't need this, but it works, you know, decades before that was ever really put to use. So sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And sometimes it it just sort of happens. Um, I think now when we talk about things like, you know, streaming services, it's clearly it's clear that there was a void that had to be filled, you know, with the accessibility of the internet comes the accessibility of media, often to the detriment of the artist but that's something else we can get into.
2: Sure. Yeah, and it's like now so much of it is being driven by money, I would say, and I probably some things are driven by creativity and you know, even even like some of the streaming, for example, you know, it's not all bad like like as a creative creative person, you have oh, access yeah. to to everything in the world. But, you oh, know, absolutely. But then it's, you know, so that's almost better for the listener, but not necessarily as good for the artist, you know? And, yeah, I mean, it's um, one of those things where, for as a smaller artist, it's great to be
1: able to have anybody hear your music very easily when it wasn't going to be something that just anybody in the world could easily access. But if you're a very large artist and people are going to be able to access your music regardless, then having them do it in a way where you're not getting very much money back is problematic. So, I can certainly see the uh, where the lawsuits came from. And I, I think that as that continues to grow, it's something that certainly needs to be addressed.
3: Yeah. You say the, to, to the detriment of the artists, but I could think of some examples where I guess they're kind of right place, right time, but like people on TikTok become huge all of a sudden because they have such exposure. Well, for their music or something yeah like i mean but i think
1: that's the exception by and large the payment and i can tell you by i can show you you know pay stubs the payment is not fair for streaming yeah not at all especially spotify i'm calling them out especially bad which is why they've been sued multiple times
3: yeah that's kind of like the main access point for a lot of people now though like it's more so people going to the internet than going to the record store. Do you think mm-hmm. that the music industry is going to adapt to make that more fair or because streaming is a more intangible thing? That's just kind of how it is. The only reason that the music industry would change
1: their policy and their, their payment on something like that is if they had to. And I'm not exactly sure how artists you know band together to make it so they have to, but it's not going away. This is going to be the way that people find music going forward. Um, I don't know you know, how you twist the arm of the music industry. I mean, people like Taylor Swift have sued Spotify, and it's going to take people like her doing that. But if, if, if the result is that she gets paid back royalties that are determined to be earned, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have the trickle-down economics that might seem to come of that. I don't know. What do you think, Jay?
2: I, I don't know where it's gonna go necessarily from like the business standpoint. It's hard to say because people like expect it to be free. So how are you gonna control that? Like like I feel like it's getting less and less controlled. So
1: Well, I mean, people are willing to pay for the service.
2: Yeah. Most people do pay for it.
1: It just The fractions of a cent that are made per play are 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 the issue. Sure, and at some point, it's it's really saturated. It's a lot like streaming television, right now. Every major network's got their own streaming platform. That bubble's gonna burst at some point because you can't afford to have each one. At least with music, it's everybody sort of on everything, so you can subscribe to one. And you have that access to everything. Mm -hmm. But I guess with with that comes the fact that the money is then a lot more thin. It's spread a lot more thinly across things. Whereas, you know, if your food network and you have your streaming service and a bunch of people are buying just that, then your pot of money is only going to the shows on your streaming service. Do you know what I'm saying?
2: It's just kind of spread out. There are
1: fewer mouths to feed. Right, and this was a perfect analogy given the food network, but <laughs> yes, you know what I'm saying. Exactly. Yes, I know. If exactly. you're driving straight into Flavor Town, yeah,
2: that's you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I guess so. That's kind of streaming. Yeah. Thinking more on technology, where and I was kind of pondering this is like, where will the technology of recording? be you know 10 years from now 20 years from now um well, well can i back you up a step before we
1: even go there sure because i think that the average listener probably doesn't really understand what you do yeah so like with modern technology what does the day in the life of jay alden look like you know what 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 tools are you using digital versus analog because i think until the, the listener understands where we stand might be tough to talk about where we're going.
2: Sure. Technology-wise, if I'm recording a band,
1: I'm going to... Sorry, not to interrupt you again, but maybe we should should start from, you know, like the Beatles. Like, how have things changed over the decades if we can kind of do that quickly? Because even understanding where you are now, if you've never used a microphone before... I guess I'm I'm trying to find a baseline, but it's really difficult.
2: Well, sure. And... Yeah, I mean, I guess if we're kind of breaking some of that down of what a recording engineer does, and from a music aspect, it kind of gets into some of what the technology mediums are of what what you guys talked about last week of working on tape machines, working on vinyl, digital recording. Um, So, I mean, where we are now, we're at a place to... To where we're doing lots and lots of stuff digital. Um, but not everything is digital. So I mean, I use a combination of analog equipment, which ultimately will get put onto the computer in a digital format. But, you know, for instance, in Sonic Lounge, where where we recorded um with Debukin and the Historians for uh It Moves in the Dark. We are recording on an analog Neve board. And so you're running through like a whole big chain of analog equipment. And then you run through, you know, some analog compressors and um, some analog EQs, and you get all sorts of good analog flavor. And all of that then ultimately will get converted to digital. And then I use a program called Pro Tools, which is a digital audio workstation, and that's where all these files go, and they get organized, and you can work with them. Um, And comparatively, I mean, going back to the Beatles, um, like I'm a big Beatles fan, and they were kind of at a cool point in technology to where a lot of things changed during their records, so they're sort of a good...
1: Yeah, and they happen to have, I mean, Jeff Emmerich, who had the power because he's working with the Beatles to do a lot of unorthodox things, which from my understanding now things that would have gotten him fired had he not been working with the biggest band in the world.
2: Oh yeah. And that's, I mean, he was like an 18 year old kid just starting out there and basically he was willing to break the rules. So that's why they liked him and then wound up using him. Um, So yeah, he's got, there's a really good autobiography he wrote where he has lots of cool stories Of working with the band. It's called Here,
1: There, and Everywhere. We talked about it a little bit last week. If you haven't read that book, it is fantastic.
2: Yeah, it's awesome. But I mean, there was like at that time, we're talking the 60s, you know, during Revolver, um, the engineers wore lab coats and ties. And it was a very just scientific thing. And you put the microphones in a certain spot every time. And that was it. And that was how you recorded. Um, and they'd be using... At that point, they're using analog gears. They're using ribbon mics. They're using tube mics. They're using a tube console. And they're recording onto a tape machine. And then ultimately, it's getting pressed onto vinyl. Um,
1: and Revolver's, what, 66?
2: Probably. Yeah, I'm so not... It's- yeah.
1: That's, like, right on the line, like, right after the switch from mono to stereo happened. Because I think, like, Pet Sounds was one of the last big albums to be recorded in mono. So they were also right on that, like, now we're able to do things in stereo.
2: Yeah, and at that point, they didn't care about stereo. Like, like all the, the Beatles albums, the stereo mixes were a complete afterthought. Like, so, which is why there's mono mixes out for the Beatles. Like, the whole remastered a mono thing and those are those are the mixes they spend all the time on is the mono mixes and then real quick they just said hey let's just pan things out for the stereo so
1: and is that because the switch from mono to stereo it took a while for it to be something anybody cared about because people really couldn't have that experience on a personal level because the equipment they had like at home for example. i mean
2: that's my guess i mean almost like if you think about it as like surround sound and like you know probably like 15 years ago people were mixing some music for surround sound but like not everybody was listening to on, on it and it didn't necessarily catch on that's my guess is that at the time they're like oh this new thing stereo and they're kind of like you
1: know. but but the thing is though people were still able to listen to music on headphones and even in the 60s that was becoming more popular so you would have thought that stereo would have caught on more quickly yeah
2: no i agree that's a good question
3: i've noticed with some of the beatles albums that i have the stereo mix is really weird like (laughs) there's a
2: reason for that it's hard, hard panned and like well in an analog in a console back then it had switches like so your panning was you had a left button and a right button as opposed to now you basically you have a pan knob so it can be everywhere in between that. So, I mean, that's that's why a lot of stuff was hard left, right? Um, But as far as why it was weird, I mean, I think that probably goes to the fact of where it was a new technology for them. Just like if you listen to, like, electronic music in the 80s, like, people are like, oh, this technology is new. Let's try everything we can with it. Like, you know, they're just kind of, like, experimenting with it but didn't really fully know what to do with it you know there
1: there weren't there weren't standards yet if you think about like recording a drum kit right even if you were to do it you know now maybe you're using eight or nine mics even if you were to do it then there really wasn't a standard for like okay well the kick and snare are center and the overheads are hard panned things like that so that's why you get to something like i think lady madonna where like the drums are all the way on one side i think just because it was like you said jay it's new we're experimenting with it we haven't yet quite figured out what is best and because we have the ability why not go as far we can as we can with it
2: sure yeah and then and the other thing to think about just as far as what they're working with was you know they're pretty much working with like four tracks for most of that stuff so think what multi track recording is is it gives you the ability to record you know different instruments or different tracks separately and then further manipulate them at a later time separately. So like now you have a computer with infinite tracks and I can have a guitar on a fader and I can solo the guitar, I can change the sound. If I don't want the guitar anymore, I can mute it. You can do all these sorts of things and what the Beatles were doing, most of their stuff is four tracks. So part of what they were doing creatively was they had to make decisions like a lot faster and much more intentionally than people do now because they had to smash everything onto onto four tracks. And then they would do something called ping ponging, which they would take you could take four, you know, four tracks and then submix them down to another track to open up other tracks on your console. So they did a lot of that. So if you listen to Sgt. Pepper's, um, that was done. Sergeant Pepper was done all on four tracks, even though there's like full orchestra and all sorts of crazy stuff. So they did that by recording things and then ping-ponging the tracks over to one track and they would commit them. And then they'd record more things and then they'd ping-pong them over to a track. But ultimately, you just have these four faders that exist on that, which is just crazy to think about.
1: Yeah, and so for comparison, now when you're working digitally in Pro Tools and you kind of have an infinite number of faders, when you do one of our songs, on average, how many tracks are we talking about? Probably
2: 25?
1: Probably more than that.
2: I mean, it, it depends. But yeah, I mean, it, it could be anywhere from like a rock band, like 24 tracks minimum. But, you know, you could have like 60 tracks or something. And where, I mean, where it starts to get crazy is when you start adding in layers and it's like, oh, if we add more background vocals, oh, we're going to add strings. Oh, we're going to add these keyboards. Oh, we got to do doubles. Like, if you get really layered with it, you can quickly add a ton of tracks. Um, But I mean, sort of the takeaway of thinking about how records were made, I think gets into that concept of decision-making of like, you basically, when you're making a record, you have a million decisions to make. Every tiny little micro decision adds up. And it also kind of steers your ship in a way of sort of like, what is your path that you're gonna take? Each little decision shapes that path. Um, So the Beatles had to make those decisions and commit to them earlier on in the process and there was kind of like ballsier in a way because like now you can postpone decisions um and so i i mean i like to make decisions as you're going along because i think the the energy of it is stronger and bolder and and then also you're not left with you know, the end of a record and you have a million decisions to make and the album has no direction. Because that's the other thing you could wind up with, just a completely lost path of all these decisions that were not interconnected. But if you make these decisions along your way that are stronger, you commit to them, you know, as a producer, as a band, you guys all commit together, then it has more intention behind it and can be ballsier. And then, similarly with tracks it's like i'm not a big fan of just layering on a million tracks just for the heck of it because like a lot of times people it's like oh yeah like i don't like the guitar let's just throw on another guitar you know maybe if i have six guitars and it's like you reach a point to where it's smaller so like having more is not more having one guitar that sounds amazing is bigger than you know five guitars that are mediocre sure so it's that like, and sense. that's a lesson learned from the Beatles and from Led Zeppelin, you know? It's like, the, there weren't a bunch of tracks back then, but it sounds better than most other things, you know? Right. It's like the, It's like, those are the greatest recordings of all time and they were all done on, you know, four tracks, eight tracks, tape machine, you know, everything was committed. So it's, you have, so looking at music now... Now we have access to all of that technology, somewhat. I don't have access to all the same technology the Beatles do, but if I had infinite money, I would. But you have all the analog gear, but then you also have the digital gear, and you have the perspective of all these different decades of sounds that happened. So then the creative choice now is like, okay, we're in 2021, so what is the sound of 2021, given the fact that you have sound from the 50s you have the sound from the 60s you have the sound from the 70s 80s 90s and like the interesting thing is like well how do you piece that together you know maybe you wind up with guitar tones that are 80s guitar tones and then you do kind of a drum sound from the 90s but then you have this like digital synth thing which is kind of modern and maybe that's your twist you know and that makes this band cool because you know it's like thinking about what's going to be the next innovative sound like it's just interesting to think about because i feel like all these decades had specific sounds but i mean it's like what do you think the 2010s sounded like do you have any thoughts <laughs> it
1: was a lot of indie rock
2: yeah but it was a lot of things though there was yeah. a lot of indie rock
1: there were i mean that's 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 true it's funny because like it's hard to describe but we, you know my friend Tyler and I used to always we'd hear a new band and we'd be like they sound like they're from LA
2: so it's all about where you're from now in, in our yeah. in our
1: head it was like about where like if you well that was really just if we were listening to like a uh, like a an, an indie rock band for example if you gave us two we'd be like these guys are from LA these guys are from Idaho yeah you know that Sip Idaho Northwest. indie rock scene
2: you know yeah oh yeah it's a good scene I think that
3: there are a lot of elements of 80s music that are kind of coming back into vogue in an
2: interesting way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. It's kind of like fashion. Like, I don't know anything about fashion, but um, I just wear hoodies all the time and that sort of thing. That's the official recording engineer outfit. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Yeah, Um, it is true. But like with fashion, it's sort of like things cycle in and cycle out and then something old is new and then you bring it back, but you kind of put your spin on it. And uh, it's sort of because we and with technology, we've kind of reached a point to where we sort of have all the tools to do whatever we want. (laughs) So it's like whereas like early on, we didn't have all the technology. So technology was pushing the boundaries of what the sound was. Well,
1: that's what I was just thinking when Mark you said that sounds from the eighties are kind of coming back into vogue. I wonder if it's because like younger generations are becoming exposed to them and are wanting to provide that, or because making those sounds was pretty tough in the eighties, but now it's remarkably easy with technology. And so if there's some gravitation towards, you know, I hate to say the lowest hanging fruit, but you know what I mean? Like it's much easier to program a drum machine or use the synthesizer in a digital format now. So I wonder if that's part of it.
3: Maybe. I would agree with that. Something that I was thinking about before we started this episode was from a technology sort of aspect the amount of free programs and digital resources and like interfaces becoming fairly cheap makes recording and producing music a lot more accessible to a wider variety of people. Mm-hmm. And, and whether or not that creates more unique ideas. I don't really know. I think a lot of music, like any art, is kind of like uh, ripping things off in varying degrees and trying to like twist it to your own style or whatever. But right. I think that that part of it is really cool that anybody who has the drive can figure out a way to do it. Like the interface that I have it was like 200 bucks or something. But compared to in the 60s or 70s you would have to go to a multi-million dollar studio and pay like a shitload of money to a scientist to be able to do some of the same stuff
1: I mean, that's oh, kind yeah. of the argument of like is the age of the record label over because anymore you don't need to have that to produce your own music of high quality thanks to the technology yeah um That also means that there's a lot of crap out there, but like, oh yeah, but at the yeah, but at the same time, like, you know, do you you don't have to follow the same formula that artists have had to follow for decades because you can produce and release and promote your own music via the internet very easily now.
3: Yeah, talking about talking about young people rediscovering music, I've seen some stuff online with very young people. Talking about this cool new band they found called Fleetwood Mac. Hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I it saw comes a- around, man.
3: <laughs> People I getting a- into older stuff and thinking that it's new.
1: <laughs> I saw a screen capture on Instagram and it was like somebody had said, Hey, I got a new record player. And it was a picture of the record player. And then they had Dark Side of the Moon, right? And the first comment was, Is that Imagine Dragons?
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: So that's that where we awesome. are.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, that makes me think of. So I have little kids now. I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a three-month-year-old. Three, not three-month-old. You can edit that out. Uh, All boys. A three-month-year-old, and uh, but yeah, recently somehow like they came across the band Jet, and they have been like absolutely crazy about Jet, and like it's just interesting because thinking about this stuff, I'm thinking about oh like. You know there was guitar music at one point and in some ways we've kind of gotten away from guitar music but my yeah. little kids just like they heard that and they're just like this is like awesome like we need to hear that we need it loud like and I didn't you know it's like I don't say anything to them to do that and, obvi- and it is awesome it's like you hear that you just want to crank it up and then I'm telling them I'm like guys I'm like I'm like this is basically just ACDC and like and literally we're in the car and like I just I go from Jet and then I go to ACDC and like this is awesome. And then I go to Zeppelin.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say you should put on Zeppelin one because as soon as good times bad Times starts that off, they're gonna poop their pants because they're children, but also because it's a great song.
2: Yeah. And it was so cool because it's like that stuff is amazing and it's timeless. And uh but yeah, you get into that thing where it's like, you know, these kids hear it and they're like, Oh, it's like this is great. Like, have you heard Zeppelin? And it's like, well you know, they're discovering these old things and you know, they're kind of a part of history, but but it's also like you know, like Mark said of, you know, there's new bands that are bringing in elements of the 80s and then there's also new bands that are still it's like every band is bringing in elements of Zep. <laughs> any band with guitars is like <laughs> paying homage to that stuff like cuz it's basically right. that is the vocabulary of rock music. Like there was a vocabulary that was created, so everything is going to come back to that. So, so it's kind of like kids or whomever is still going to gravitate to that because it's the original, and it's going to kind of cycle in and out. But it's it's the thing of the new stuff is like, which I always tell people is like, what's the twist? You know, sure you're doing so you're doing Zeppelin type stuff. Well, what's the twist? Like, what's going to make it different?
3: It's like a Greta Van Fleet. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's Zeppelin, but there is no twist.
2: Well, there's no twist, but it's still cool because Zepp, Zeppelin is that cool that if you just kind of do that, you're just like, yeah. See, I'd
1: argue there is a twist. Is there? Okay. It's Zeppelin, but it's shitty. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you should hear Robert Plant get interviewed about them. It's great. Okay, I haven't heard that. Let me let me ask this question. Um, because we all, I think we all in our lives had that experience that your kids are having now. And I hope, does Max still get all psyched up when Moving in the Dark comes on the radio?
2: Oh, yeah. And that's crazy to hear, too. So, my five year old, he's growing up with an interesting experience because he sees bands coming into his house recording and making albums. So, to him, it's just a very normal thing like that his dad's just making recordings with people and there's bands in. And then, you know, we heard moving in the dark on the radio and he's like dad dad it's it's moving in the dark by like dave's band you know so he hears that and thinks it's cool but i don't think he like really realizes like what's going on of like hey this song that were the is on the radio because i in my head i'm like like dude like this is really cool and right. that you know no matter how many times you hear a song on the radio like, it's pretty cool i just like what he calls it i think that's super cute yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah he's he still uh you know, he still likes his Dave Becker and the historians. He's got good taste.
1: Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, well my question, what I was thinking was like we all had the moment that that Mac had or what your kids had with, with Jet and then moving to like AC DC and Zeppelin. But as as all fans of the Beatles, can you remember not when you first heard the Beatles, but like when you first heard the Beatles, like when it first dawned on you that it was something special? because I I can. And I'm wondering if you had that moment or maybe there was another band where you had that moment where you're like this is like this is significant for me in this moment to hear to hear this the way that I'm hearing it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can definitely think of that. I mean, it was interesting for me because it was a little bit later. Like um
1: it was for me too. Yeah.
2: So, I remember and this is cool because one of the things I wanted to get into was like experience and kind of how that affects you, you know, mm-hmm. as a Either as a creator of music or as a consumer of music, and but yeah, thinking about the Beatles, I remember when I was a freshman in college, I I wound up going to New York City with um, a couple older classmen for the AES conference, the Audio Engineering Society, Mm -hmm. and it was like a big, it was a big seminal trip and time because I'm going to New York City, um, just with like a couple sort of older mentor people and I just listened to all these great engineers you know giving speeches and all of a sudden I was just like super pumped and I was a freshman in college in music school I'm just like you know I'm gonna go out there I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and I remember we were walking around and we were in Central Park and it just so happened to be John Lennon's birthday um so everybody it was basically like a Beatles party. Everybody was, you know, dressed up as the Beatles. Everyone's singing the Beatles. There's like, you know, all these different separate circles and people are just singing Beatles songs like all day celebrating that. And we we just hung out there for a while and we were just super into it and then I remember those guys were talking to me about the Beatles and and it was like, "Oh yeah, like I heard the Beatles, but" You know, and they're like, "Oh, you need to need to get this record and this record and this record and start here and start with this and then this one and then and and at that point, I was just like on a journey and and at the same point, I'm like psyched about recording and music and I pretty much just bought every album and just started going through them and just kind of, you know, and I bought the Beatles complete scores and I bought recording the Beatles and like I just kind of went crazy on it, but it was like, it's also think with a lot of people it's like those experiences in high school or college like that time in your life where there's such big change happening the music you listen to is kind of ingrained in you in a different way than maybe other periods of your life um and that happened to be you know during that period of my life as well so so I guess it was a big a big moment for me
1: yeah, for me, it was around the same time. I mean, I had been really into music since I was pretty young, um, especially because of my grandmother. Um, but my mom was always a big fan of the Beatles. And I, I had been buying, you know, lots of music for years all throughout high school. And But then my my taste sort of shifted a little bit. I was really into metal, kind of growing up. And, and you know, I, I was aware of the Beatles. I had heard the Beatles before. But when I was a right before I graduated from high school, my birthday is in May. So sometime around my birthday, um, my mom bought me a copy of Abbey Road. And that was the first time I had really had a Beatles record where like, I was going to focus on, okay, like this is the full record. Like I had heard, you know, songs here and there. And it just opened everything up to me in terms of like, you know, metal recording isn't very, um, It's not all that interesting. Um, It's very polished. It's very precise. But the Beatles had a quality that I wasn't used to, and the style of the recording was so different to me. It was organic, but it was beautifully performed. There was precision, but there was character. And I remember I was dating this girl at the time, and she wanted to come over to hang out, and I was like, "Uh, honestly, I'm busy, because I just wanted to to listen to this record over and over again. Um, and and that was like I remember that being a turning point for me. And then you know, within a year, I was in music school. And I again, I had been a musician for years, but that really kind of pushed me over the edge. Mark, you better
2: have a good ass story, man. Do you know who the Beatles are? <laughs> have you heard this band? The Beatles.
3: Yes. My uh, my he's parents. Mo- he's more of a monkeys man. The bugs.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah. My parents had a record player in the basement, and. A lot of the records that they had, I was not familiar or very interested in, but they had a two disc Beatles LP. It was the blue one. It's like a compilation album that was like the second half of their career. So it had all the like weirder stuff on it. And I remember listening to that a lot in like middle school and thinking it was really cool. And I don't know if I had any like profound emotional like revelation about it or anything but to me music is a little bit like smell like when you smell something you recognize what it is and where you smelled that before music kind of has the interesting effect of I remember when I first heard this or what I was doing when this thing happened like I could think of plenty other examples of specific bands or songs or something and the emotion the moment and things that came along with it i guess that's mm-hmm. kind of what music is for and that's really cool um yeah. i don't know no
1: i agree with that i mean that makes that makes total sense to me i mean as much as that was a profound moment for me i also you know i remember exactly when it was i remember what kind of day it was outside like not only was that profound to hear that record at that time but it, every time i hear it and think about it i'm right back in my bedroom when i was like you know 17 years old i remember that moment
3: i guess a lot of it is nostalgia type things like music that you and tyler and i listened to or when i was in high school listening to like bright eyes or something like that and i have certain albums that are kind of like seasonal albums Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, remind me of a certain time or something.
1: You got one album for the winter. What's the What's the album? You going only only pick one? Because I do the same thing. I have seasonal albums too.
3: I don't know my. The way I listen to music now has kind of changed, and I I don't listen to music as regularly. A lot of the albums that I am I am thinking of were CDs that I had in my car, and were kind of forced to to listen to over and over again. Like because uh, we're old, Band of Horses cease to begin is yeah. like a very fall album for me for some reason. Yeah,
1: yeah. For me, uh, give up postal service is always very winter.
2: Well, that's a summer album for me. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs>
1: because I I think it's because like when I first heard it, I, it was in the winter time. But also, there's something about the you know it's very sterile in that it's largely digital. There's something about that. Like I'm more likely to listen to very digital music in the winter and more organic music in the summer.
2: Can you think of what was your first experience or memory with music that you can remember?
1: I I can. Um, My parents had a record player until the needle broke and then decided like, well, this whole thing's dead now never used it again and that's a true story but my my dad had some records and i loved as a little kid kenny loggins and he had the top gun soundtrack so i would get up early in the morning like 6 a.m and i'd wake him up because i wanted to listen to danger zone so he would take me downstairs and he would put that record on for me so i could hear it and i would do this all the time and that's the earliest memory i have that's I probably seven seven years old Maybe. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Nice. I remember when I was a kid I had a like a tape player radio thing that had the microphone that you plug into it. And I had a tape of like lullabies or little kids' music or something, but I would listen to it trying to go to sleep. I don't exactly remember what songs were on it, but that's probably my first memory that I could think of.
2: What about you, Jay? my first big one was i was way into the ninja turtles um oh nice just in general but they also had a whole album and tour called coming out of their shells and uh, i was way into that and we had a cassette tape of like all the songs and uh like me and my brother and sister and my neighbors would literally dress up as the Ninja Turtles and like put on concerts and have like a karaoke machine. And we had like toy guitars and all that. And now, and I actually, that was the very first concert I ever went to. I was probably four or five years old and they played at the Clippers Stadium, like okay. the, old, the old Clippers. The stadium. old one, yeah. And uh, my dad, he took me and my brother there maybe my neighbor too um but that was like I feel like that had a lot of impact because like at that point you like kind of think the turtles are real um I remember thinking they played electric the electric guitar I was like I was in love with it then like I didn't play or anything but I just thought it sounded so cool and it was like cheesy late 80s you know electric guitar but it just sounded awesome, and
1: yeah, it was like hair metal stuff, kind of. Pretty right? much, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I
2: mean, it was basically pop hair metal, is what yeah. all that music was.
1: It's amazing they were able to play that well with just the
2: three kind of bulky fingers. Yeah, you know, with all enough you know? practice, I mean, and the right instruments. So.
1: It's it's funny how profound those things can be when you're when you're that you know that young. I mean, my other memory I have is being really little, and my grandmother had a piano. And I would just sit next to her, and she would play different things for me. And I still remember that. You know, that's... Because my first concert was much later. Because I saw the Kiss farewell tour when I was probably, like, 13. Kiss and Ted Nugent. That's a
2: good first concert.
1: It actually was. I, the thing about it was that Skid Row was the opener. But my uncle said, Sebastian Bach's not with him anymore, so we're not going to watch it. And I didn't know what that meant. Um, so we ate nachos instead (laughs) okay that works um but yeah i mean it was a i mean musically you know it was what it was but as a show that was pretty good
2: i also grew up with piano in the house and my mom played a little bit so hearing her play was pretty cool and then relatives house there was always a piano around like and i remember holidays going up to like my grandpa's house in Connecticut, and they had a big grand piano, and they had a record player, and um, just I remember people sitting around the piano and playing holiday music and having holiday records on, and, and uh, that's definitely an early memory as well, which which is pretty cool. And like you know, as a parent, I've you know I bought that piano last year, and that was kind of right. one thing. I'm like, I got these kids. I was like, I need. I need a piano sitting around the house that they can just bang their fingers on. Like mm-hmm. And I've got the studio here, but it's some of this stuff is like fragile, you know, it's like it's like do I want them playing on my vintage whirlitzer? Like <laughs> maybe. Although, although like every time I came over the last
1: couple years, Mac wants to play something on the whirlitzer. So would, I mean, yeah. kids yeah. like
2: whirlitzers. I mean, and that's <laughs> <Yeah>. that's fair. <laughs> um so you know and they and they like the guitars too but like the piano it's like it's like they can't break the piano it's pretty big they can't knock it over so no but it's been it's been cool so they occasionally walk up there and noodle around and that sort of thing um so yeah we'll see what how that shapes their future nice yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens with this next generation um so obviously there's some big things going on in the world but it's like I feel like we grew up yeah. in a time where it was it was like the follow your dreams generation to some extent. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like at least with like me and my friends, it's like oh well, if you like this, do that, you know. Which is kind right. of true, but it's also like you're also you know looking back, you're sort of like well, like there's also sort of real world stuff, or there's a need for this, or would this be a good job? Like you know, there's a little bit of a balance to that. Whereas I feel like we had very much a follow your dreams kind of a thing which works out for some people but not for others you know but yeah the yeah, future I, mean, I don't know what it'll bring I mean it's like the world is so crazy right now like it's hard to imagine you know what what will the thoughts be 10 years from now when my kids are graduating high school trying to figure out what to do for a living are they going to want to be recording engineers or something yeah. else
1: I mean nobody was an influencer when we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do with our lives
2: yeah so True. And I'm curious, like, just sort of, like, how people listen to music. Like, how will that change? Because, I mean, one thing I've just sort of a general observation is thinking about how people used to listen to music versus now and just it is much more passive and it's much more sporadic and just kind of all over the place to where your thing with Abbey Road of, like, I have this record and I'm sitting down and I'm listening to it. And even, like, I grew up. There were still cassette tapes. You had a cassette tape. You yep. listen to it. When it's done, you listen to it again. You know, or you make. And a you couldn't it. skip
1: tracks very easily. Yeah, you on couldn't those. skip tracks oh, yeah. easily. You just
2: listen to it over and over again. Maybe you had like two or three of them, and you just listen to it over and over again. And you repeat it. And and right now, it's like it's not like that. It's like you know, it's like Alexa, play this next song you know, like whatever you want, whenever you want. And it's very disjointed. So it's just, you know, or you're like, you're like going from one place to the next, you know, you're, you're in your car, you're at the gym, and you're just throwing in your earbuds. Maybe because you want to hear some noise, you know, or like maybe you want to listen to record, I don't know. But there's, it's filling in this different space to where I'm just curious, like what's going to happen later on I think maybe there will be kind of a rebirth. I mean, sort of like now when you look at a lot of bands are releasing vinyl. Like, I mean, at least on a on a, a smaller level, there are groups that are really into that because of this different way of listening to music.
1: Right. Or, or like we talked about last week that part of it is also maybe like it's a collectible thing. But I think yeah, once you've a, got the vinyl and you're going to put it on, it's not really going to be a passive choice.
2: Right. Yeah, it is It is both a physical thing, which I think we like. We still like stuff and things and we like the art and collecting things. Like, I, I mean, it's not as much fun to just click a button on Spotify. Like, it's much more fulfilling, I think, to like a record on and like oh yeah have this thing that's sitting up there and it's got cool artwork and you can touch it like i still think that's cool and
1: it's got liner notes i miss liner notes when i was a kid nothing i liked more than listening to a record and reading the lyrics or going through each song and seeing who played what and what all the instruments were yeah i feel like that's kind of lost anymore and i that meant so much to me like that's how i learned what different instruments sounded like and what you could do
2: with different instruments. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I'm like, I wonder if that's going to come back or
3: I think the new thing is like, um, through streaming services, curated playlists. Like I enjoy sitting and listening to a full record of a band that I enjoy, but when my wife puts music on, it's not the same artist. It's a bunch of similar things. And I don't know if it's something that she put together or it's something that like Spotify does for you.
1: How do you feel about that?
3: Um, I sort of like it. I think it's interesting to listen to a variety of similar things that, that you like. It exposes you to different bands, and then you can go back and listen to their albums. It's sort of like a spider web sort of thing. Like when I log in and look at my, my Spotify, there are different lists that it puts together based on the things that you have listened to. So like I've been listening to shoegaze type music and there's a whole list on there and it's like, okay, I like this band. I like this band. I like this band. I don't really like this one. And then I can discover more things from that. So it's Mm -hmm. cool. It's also a very different way of listening to music.
1: Sure. Well, it's kind of like listening to your favorite radio station right
2: yeah but it's a with a good dj sort of like oh yeah yeah, like, yeah. yeah. DJ'll, they'll put on some good bands that'll yeah way of checking yeah. out new bands and stuff
1: well i struggle with that because i i have a hard time with music out of context like i remember being in high school and the you know the age of burning cds and stealing things off of napster not to, to date ourselves a little bit here but like if somebody gave me something and it was the wrong track order To me, it was like sacrilege.
3: Oh, how dare you! I would download stuff from LimeWire and try to download full albums individually by track, and then Mm -hmm. meticulously rename them and put them together.
1: Yeah, I can appreciate that because I mean the track order to me is really important, which is it makes it hard for me to listen to things out of context. But I mean, I think I probably have a slightly different perspective about that because, like. I've had situations where track listing was very specific for me, very important for me. That I'm I am projecting that on other things. So a
2: certain way you get used to it, you know. Like if it's a record you really like, you're just you're just used to it, and you know what song comes next. And yes, yes. Um, but yeah, it's like good records though have a good song order and it flows well, and that's part of what makes them cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I know that you and I, Jay, have had many a, a conversation about track order, and it has never once been arbitrary. Yeah, well, nor yeah, have we ever ways. fully agreed. I don't think.
2: Yeah, and it's and it's not a, it's not a perfect science by any means. No, but it's kind of like, well, what do you want to say with it? You know, it's like, what do you want the album order to say? Like, how do you want the shape? How do you want the shape? Like, if you picture a story arc, you know, it's kind of like mm-hmm. that. And, right. Uh, It could be different things, and that's you know, with recordings and music, it's like it could be a million different things, and that's where you have all these little decisions that kind of they make it what you collectively want it to be. Um, But yeah, it's like there's all these different options. So, but yeah, it's definitely it's it's tricky because yeah, it's most people are most people are in general listening to songs out of context. (laughs) You know, like you said, so. But maybe they hear a song of yours on a playlist and then come back to it. And and I think that's mm-hmm. probably what people do. Like, if you hear an artist you like, you go to that artist and you listen to the album. Right. You know, that's what I would do. But I'm, like, super biased because I'm a... Like, I record music, so I don't... Yeah, you know. I,
1: I can say that, like, ever since I've been a videographer, it has ruined some things for me. Yeah. And same thing with music, like... Sometimes it's hard to listen to something and turn my brain off about certain aspects and yeah. just like enjoy it. Maybe that's what I—I'll never get that feeling back I had listening to Abbey Road when I was seventeen, because I was such a neophyte that like I was ready for all of that information. Right.
2: But yeah, you know that's kind of it's like what you try to get, and like I guess as somebody who writes music or who makes music it's like you want to recreate that feeling that mm-hmm. that you had so right. when you're thinking about writing new music it's like well how do you recreate that feeling for somebody else you know which it's interesting to think about and you know if you're writing music like you write more I don't really I don't write as much music as you do I just kind of help produce it but um, mm. you know it's like if you're writing music well who are you writing music for and then what are their experiences and it's like how do you tie into their experience of how they know music and then like tap into that emotion like that's one way to think about trying to get music to resonate with people you know and that's sort of there's different ways to write music you know part of it you could just write what you want to write maybe people like it maybe they don't but you could also think about hey, who is listening to my music and what experiences do they have with music and can I write it in a way that resonates with them based on their experience? Sure. Um, which is
1: interesting to think about it that way. I think maybe the listener can understand now why why we've worked with Jay for so long. Because this is not um, this, this is not unique to this podcast. I know you, you think about music on a very high level and we always have kind of conversations like this, which is great because talking this stuff out with you when I'm going through the process really helps me a lot and pushes me in different directions. So I'm glad that other people are getting to you
2: know, experience that. I'm happy to have the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting to think about like what you said with hearing Abbey Road for the first time. Like if I'm listening to your songs and making a record my moment like one of the most important moments is if you send me a demo and i'm hearing it for the first time because that's the one moment to where i've never heard this thing before it's a clean slate i can kind of wipe my brain and be like hey this song is just appearing out of thin air and just kind of how does it affect me on just a basic level which usually, I tr- like if I'm doing that, I try to listen to it just as I'm just here, I'm blank, and then I hear a fresh song out of the blue. I'm not analyzing the tones of it or the chords or the melody, because like, I can be very analytical about music, sure. but there's kind of this magical moment, and it's like that with anything, like the first time you hear a song, that's sort of like, that's like the test, you know, maybe on your Spotify playlist or whatever, you get to a new song and it's like, does it resonate with you or does it not? Because like sometimes it does, you hear a new song, you're like, whoa, like I've never sometimes heard this it before, hits this you... is amazing. And it like, yeah. so it's like, what is it that does that? And then if you send me a demo and I hear it for the first time, I'm kind of hearing just the raw elements, but you know, does that blow me away? Or or is it good but it it's like it needs another little secret sauce ingredient that it's missing you know and that's that's kind of the catch too with as a producer you're sort of like you're sort of like oh okay this song is great but like it's missing you know a little acid it's missing a little salt you know it's like right. it needs a little bit of this and you're not rewriting it but you're like you're trying to find what you can do to like potentially optimize it so that then when somebody else hears it for the first time, it completely blows them away.
1: Um, it's, it's funny because we've been doing so much more demoing in recent years and we're kind of in that mode right now. And, it, and it's something that I've come to understand is that like you cannot make a bad song good by using the arrangement, but you can make a good song great by using the arrangement. So like even if the demo is is not very clean... If it gets you then, then I know we're on to something.
2: Oh, yeah. That's totally true. And it's sort of like a couple ways to think about it. Um, You know, any Beatles song, you could play it on a crappy demo. Somebody could play it on an out-of-tune guitar. You could play it as a lullaby with no words. It's going to be amazing no matter what. Like, it's that good. So it has nothing to do with the arrangement, but fully the song. So it's like... So yeah, it's like as a recording engineer and producer, those are just kind of tools to make it better, but at a you know, the original foundation, it is the song that matters, which is why those sort of the first things you do are these kind of listening to things fresh, pre-production, looking at the fundamental aspects of a song. So yeah, with with a, with recording and with music like A lot of times I think about signal flow, which is kind of a recording concept of like, hey, the signal starts at the microphone, then it goes down a cable, it goes to the preamp, then from there it goes to the compressor, then it goes to the converter, then it's in the computer, you know? And then you can kind of go from there, reverse, you know? When you're mixing, it comes out through the computer, out through the converters, back into the speakers, into the room, into the ears. Like there's a signal flow, but with a song, this, the signal flow of the song starts with like the song. It starts with the concept of what is the song? What is it about? Um, and then only after you have that can you start to think about some of these other little things of you know, the form and the arrangement, and then what the band is playing. What are the tones? Right. How does the snare drum sound? What room are we in? So you have all these things, but at a fundamental level, the the first thing is the concept, you know, the concept that starts in your head that turns into a song. So if that's not right, like nothing else matters. You know, all this recording stuff is just for nothing. You know, it just makes it sound like a little better, I guess.
1: It makes me think of a song. I don't know, the first song that came to mind when you were saying that was is, uh, Dreams by Fleetwood Mac.
2: There are so many
1: aspects of that recording that make it a great arrangement to me. You know, Mick Fleetwood's snare drum. I always love the sound of the snare drum on that song. The way the harmony vocals sound against the lead vocal. But if you just break the song down, the way that the melody works with the harmony, you know, what works with the chords, the lyrics of the song, you have such a great foundation that any arrangement on top of that is going to be good. But it can be great if it's the right balance.
2: Right. You have yeah, you have more like options. <laughs> yeah. 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 A- and that's why it's like really good songs are kinda of people redo them. They do covers of them. You know, because the yeah. song was so good that it can handle different arrangements of it. Um But yeah, you know, it's like and that's the songs that are these timeless songs, they're a combination of everything. You know, it's it's a combination of the perfect song, the perfect recording, the perfect arrangement. And also, like, timing is interesting to think about. It's like, well, what time in history did that song come out? You know, it's like if a certain song came out at a later time or an earlier time, would it have resonated as much with people? Like, not necessarily, you know, and that's, kind of, that's where it's kind of interesting, too, because it's, you know, maybe there's different trends musically or just how people are to where something might have resonated, you know, in this year, but not on the other year. You know, I mean,
1: I know that we've, you know, I can think of songs that we've worked on where we have spent hours on just the snare drum sound. But in the end, it made a big difference.
2: Right. It still matters. And it's kind of the you just you want something to be as good as it can be. You know, it's you want it to be the fullest potential and the best version of itself. So and that's what we're trying to do. Um, You know, you do your best based on where you're at and the decisions you make um but yeah it's kind of like i mean i always just think of you i'd rather have something be like different and with character and really go for it rather than just be half-assed <laughs> you know sure. or wishy-washy it's like you never want anything to sound wishy-washy like you weren't sure like it needs to be like you're sure you know and especially it's thinking about vocals it's like you want to be so in love. You want to be in love with every track on recording to where the vocal is good enough that you could just crank that up. You know what I mean? And like the guitars are so good that you could just crank those guitars up if you want. And if every element in there is that good, like then you have more freedom of what it could be. You know, because you're trying to make everything is the best potential of what it could be and then it gives you more options for what it could be.
1: Right, you're not trying to hide anything.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and then you're not you're not bashful, you're not hiding, and then it doesn't sound like you are. You know, it's like it's very easy to hear if if you're sounding yeah. like you're trying to hide something. And that's and who wants to listen to that like when it gets on a Spotify playlist is that going to catch your ear? No. Like somebody whose voice sounds crazy and different you know, and who's going all out, like they're going to catch your ear. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't, but they're going to catch your ear. And it's like, if something's just wishy-washy, it just kind of like floats in the background, you know?
3: Mm-hmm. From a technology standpoint, do you feel like digital gear has gotten good enough that there's not that much of a difference between analog and digital now? Dave and I have talked about this in terms of pedal effects and stuff like that.
2: I think it's gotten significantly better in just in the time that I've been doing this professionally. Like, like, and I started interning in studios, you know, in like 2002, so almost, almost 20 years. Um, Whereas like back then, Pro Tools had just come out pretty much or like had just been been starting to get used Um, so like back then I would say digital did not sound that good and it was just very limited to where I think professional recordings were very heavily relying upon the analog gear of past decades to make things sound good so anything pro you were hearing in like the 90s you know was probably all recorded on 24 track, two inch machines, you know, maybe it went digital at some point, but to some extent, but a lot of it was being done analog. And like since then, like in the last 20 years, I would say it's gotten significantly better. And the biggest thing that does that is the converters. So essentially there's something called a converter, which just converts analog to digital. So that's for most people. That's their interface. Um, you know, if you have an interface to get into your computer, it has converters that are turning this analog signal into a digital file of ones and zeros. So the way in which that is done can be really, really good or not so good, and that can be part of the secret sauce of if you have everything else. If everything else is great, and you have all this you know you have the perfect band and the analog gear and the great room and nice microphones but like that's at the end of the chain you know if that's not right then it's it's never going to sound like quite as good and when people talk about like oh digital's never as good as analog like analog's smooth and it's like well you know it kind of depends like and and really it depends on converters a lot of the time sort of that smooth factor i would say and i would say they're pretty pretty good now um and then further from that once you get into a computer you're dealing with a whole another level of processing as far as plugins and mixing in the box and i think that can still improve i feel like it's gotten really good to where all the emulations and the plugins and the the samplers and the different types of reverbs, those are all a lot better. Are they as good as the real thing? It's, you know, there's still probably something magical about the real thing when it comes to, you know, a Fairchild compressor versus a plugin. But they're pretty good now to where I feel like you can use them on 90% of things and be totally happy with them. You know without I mean? a lot of
3: experience, the layperson couldn't tell the difference.
2: Yeah, that's the layperson couldn't tell the difference. um Like if they were working on them, and kind of go into what you were saying about like, you know, you your kid in high school could have a laptop with GarageBand and making be making their own music and their albums, stuff like that, and that's awesome and it gives access to doing that to somebody who didn't have access to it before and it also gives access to them to learn about some of these things so you might have a plug for an 1176 compressor which is a famous compressor that you can just have a, a plug-in version that sounds kind of like the real thing but you obviously don't have enough money to buy the real thing so you can learn about that by hearing it. And you can have a plugin of an LA-2A and you can learn about that and see how it sounds. And yeah, it's probably good enough for most people. And those are getting better and better and better um, to where they're good enough for a lot of like pro mixing too. I don't, I think there's still a need for some analog stuff where it's like, I'll still run things through Analog compressors as well, and I'll run them through analog summing mixers, because that stuff still just sound, it just sounds really good, and it has vibe, and it feels good to do it. Um, but there's still, I guess, there's still room to get better, you know. And part of it too is thinking about when I mix something on the computer, am I mixing in the box versus out of the box, and what that means is like it. Let's say I have a hundred tracks on my computer. Mixing in the box, the computer would be taking all those 100 tracks and combining them together mathematically. So at that point, the technology and the math determines how good is that going to be done. Whereas the other approach is I could take those 100 tracks, I could spit them out of the computer through digital to analog converters, I could put them on an analog mixing console, and I could sum them together on the analog mixing console. And now they're all being combined in an analog environment, which is like that process to some extent is how a lot of people still mix because there's still something that is lost when you sum in the box. So like I have an analog summing mixer, I run things through a lot of people I know do. Some people have analog boards they mix through. So that's something where as the technology gets better and the math gets better, maybe there won't be a need for that. Um, so there still is room for improvement for sure. Um, and I, I imagine as processing gets better, you know, usually it's as processors get faster and better, you know, the software will follow and then, if the right algorithms are written, maybe it'll sound better. Um, but we'll see. Does that answer your question somewhat? Yeah, I think maybe the
3: the type of gear and the the system that you use maybe gives your recordings more personality because you have an individual style. I'm sure mm-hmm. that that other engineers do the same type of stuff, but maybe in a different order or a different system or something that makes it sort of unique. And I think that that's cool. And people probably like that.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I definitely can. I, and I think using analog gear or some sort of a different signal chain, like a lot of those things, they add character. Yeah. And maybe some uniqueness. And then I do think they just sound pro. Like if I listen to something and it sounds pro, Versus just kind of a home studio. Like there's some of these little things make a difference on that because I could take a song and just mix it down in Pro Tools in the box and that's and then separately run that out through really nice converters and analog summing mixer and analog compressor and it's just gonna flat out sound better. And that's purely based on using the right technology. I, I feel like that's it, you might as well do that if you can. It's still you know if you don't have that, then you can just mix it in the box. But, um, but it's just one of those things of trying. You're trying to get you know every time you do something, you're trying to get it to be like the Beatles or like Led Zeppelin. It's like you're you're trying to shoot for that. So it's whatever you can do to get it to be like that.
3: Also, in the technology front. Why so many different audio formats? Formats,
2: as far as
3: well, when we talked to Doc, we talked about mechanical, electromechanical, and didn't get so much into the digital. But as far as like computer file formats for audio, I'm looking at a list here on Wikipedia, and there are probably like twenty five or thirty different type of.
1: So you mean like a wave versus an AIFF versus a MP3? And... Yeah. For the most part, it's it's only a couple different things, but you've got proprietary forms of them. Is that right, Jay?
2: A lot of these are proprietary. I pretty much work with WAVES or AIFFs, and like those are kind of the professional quality files you would get. Um, And they're the same as far as quality, as as far as I know. You know, if I go work in Pro Tools, I might be working with WAVES, but if Dave gives me an AIFF assuming it's the same bit depth and sample rate, it will be the same quality and it'll work in my session totally fine. So those are like uncompressed, high-quality digital audio files. So a lot of the other ones that are on there, I'm guessing, are more of compressed files like an MP3. An MP3 is basically a compressed file to where it's a smaller file size, but it doesn't sound as good it's i mean it's essentially like you know with a an analogy to a picture where it's more pixelated like there's just there's not as much information there so because of that it's more all the information is smeared you know and it's there's less detail um and that's You know, when you're streaming too, you're getting a version like that where it's more of a compressed file that is smeared and there's not as much detail as you would get on a WAV file. Um, But yeah, and thinking about, you know, the concept of, I guess, just, I don't know if you talked about bit depth and sample rate and all that stuff. Um,
1: No, we didn't really get into that, no.
2: Yeah. But, you know, a CD is typically, or I guess always, 44. Forty-four point one kilohertz, which is I think you guys started talking about about digital audio, and that was kind of the standard for CDs. And then it's sixteen bit, which is bit depth. So it's like the freak. The sampling rate has to do with the frequency spectrum of the sound that can be captured, and that's where I think Doc was talking about the Nyquist theorem, where that gets into. Um, and that's kind of Part of the reason they picked 44.1 kHz is because, according to the Nyquist theorem, I think it's basically half that amount is the highest frequency you can hear. So, the highest frequency you could hear on a 44.1 kHz audio file would be 22.5 kilohertz, Which is, like, the highest, I think on average, like the highest frequency you can hear is, I don't know, I wanted to say 20... It hurts, but I don't think anybody could really hear that high. But, um, yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, so it's like we can't hear any higher than that. But so they have all these higher sampling rates, too, of, like, you can do 88.2 or 96K or 190, 192, which you kind of get into these areas to where they're higher sampling rates. But really, they allow you to capture frequencies that are higher than what you can actually hear. If that makes sense. So, why would they exist? They exist. I mean, it's kind of like if you think about like why do you have 8K cameras, you know, if you're going to show it on an HDTV or a 4K TV? Like, it's sort of, it gives you more information to where, like, the way I think about it is, you know, if you have more of that information, take that and then process it. When you do your whole all of your processing, you're doing it with more information. So even if ultimately it goes to you know a CD that's 16 bit 44.1, you're doing the whole combining, you know, with more information. But um, yeah, and bit depth is basically getting into your dynamic range of like how big of a range. Of dynamics you know what's the loudest sound to the quietest sound that you can record um, so usually I mean we'll record at 24 bit sometimes can do 32 bit now um, which just gives you a wider dynamic range of what you can record so if I record a file that's really quiet if it's only on 16 bit and then I crank the level up I'm gonna have some digital noise down at the bottom of the dynamic range Whereas if I recorded at a higher bit depth, I can manage to turn that up a bit without getting digital noise at the bottom. That's kind of a basic explanation of that. So you wouldn't reach for 32 in every situation? I don't. Sometimes you can like, I guess 32 is confusing because you could like set your session to 32. But if your converters aren't actually doing it at 32, you're like, you're not really recording it at 32 if that makes sense so but you could be mixing and processing at 32 if you want so i mean i don't most of my stuff i'm not doing it that because it's it's one of those things of the cost of extra cpu power like is it worth it for what you're doing and not necessarily because it's less it's less important with the things that i'm doing if I were doing classical recording all the time, I would probably be more likely to do that because there's more dynamic range. Whereas if I record rock vocals or rock guitars, like there's a lot less dynamic range. Like 24 bits of dynamic range is a lot, you know? It's plenty. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and this kind of maybe brings us to where we can kind of the last thing we can touch on, which is your original question, Jay, talking about, you know, where are we going? what's going to be the future of, of recording audio. I, you know, it took us a while, but I think we've, we've kind of now laid a foundation for the listener to sort of understand what we're talking about. So where do you think it's going? I mean, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, how do you think things are going to change?
2: It's a good question. And I don't really have the answer to that. Uh, I guess thinking about it, I mean, it's like you start thinking about how people consume music. And I feel like that is changing so rapidly that it's hard to like predict what's going to happen with that. I think the thing, I mean, one thing I've noticed is that like people still want to create music. And like, even like this whole last year has been crazy with the pandemic and stuff like that to where there was so much uncertainty a year ago but like one of the first things i noticed was just like you know in the midst of that like people want to make things they want to make art they want to make music and they're doing it no matter what so from the creation side i don't think you know i, I mean music is just going to it's just going to keep happening like it's so fundamental in how like people are and you know as a listener what people need and what they want to hear and as a creator what people want to do so I think that's going to continue and it's still going to be important so the things that are going to change in the future are more so like how are we going to consume it Um, and like I think the streaming thing to some extent is not really going to go away like that's just when you think about TV, it's got that whole path of how TV is happening. It's like you buy your channel or you buy your Netflix or Hulu or whatever. And it's more of this streamlined, like direct buy thing. And, you know, maybe there'll be more of that with music, but it's, you know, it's definitely, I think it's going to continue people listening on their phones and on their computers and and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, maybe there's going to be your resurgence of the analog domain but i I think it's like that's the people who buy the records are still gonna be like a minority of them you know it's like the mainstream person does not care to like go out and buy a record player um and i mean the sort of the weird the weird thing too is just this concept of quality of like you know with with all this technology stuff we are striving for higher quality recorders and higher quality tape recorders and then higher quality cassettes, and then higher quality CDs, and then we're pushing the boundaries of digital, and then iPods, MP3s, streaming. And it's kind of gotten just crappier and crappier and crappier from a quality standpoint. So we have access to more, but the quality is less. So I do wonder if at some point the quality will go up again, Um, which maybe that will be pushed by something like you know, like Beats by Dre. Like, I'm thinking about, you know, it's like Jay-Z. Like, th- isn't he doing, like, title and titles, like, higher quality? So right? Joe
1: has a title account, and he's able to listen to, like... I think it's, like, hi-fi you know, streaming. Hi-fi, yeah. Hi-fi masters he's able to listen to. So um, if that catches on, then, yeah, potentially. And then
2: higher, you know, and it's, like, you know, thinking about high, higher quality headphones, too. It's, like, maybe that's something where... That becomes a thing and then it's like the wireless earbuds that are like super hi-fi so then because i have these hi-fi earbuds i need the super hi-fi streaming you know so like maybe there's a place for that eventually but
1: yeah i mean i I I think it's interesting because like the the typical earbud doesn't sound very good and i think so many people started using those that there probably wasn't a lot of drive for higher quality audio output because that's the format to which it's hitting through which it's hitting your ears.
3: Yeah. I think there's definitely an audiophile segment out there, but it's still the minority. Yeah.
1: That's true, but but there is middle ground because like you said, Jay, there's, you know, Bose is starting to put out some nicer like wireless earbuds. There are other brands putting out earbuds that are of, you know, very good fidelity. And that might kind of up the game once the stylish component matches with the fidelity. You know, those things start to merge.
2: Your average person, I think, is getting more into the passive listening from being pulled so many ways from just so many. There's so much stimuli, like, constantly, you know. Right. So that's pulling your attention away. And it's like, I don't think that's going to change, you know. Um, but but it is just it's just so fundamental the you know everybody just loves music um, it's just a very fundamental thing I mean another just sort of interesting thought you know where music is going and just kind of look t- talking about this year and how it's been different like not having live music and how like that's been pretty. Crazy and just sort of how that that affects your average person, like non-musicians. And I've had so many conversations with people who are not musicians who are just like, Oh my god, I haven't been to a concert. Like I need to go to a concert, like I miss that. And and that's just such a like fundamental experience that people just love. And Mm -hmm. it's just such a natural thing. And and I don't think that would ever go away. And no matter whatever, like, recording music does. Because there's something about getting together with people in a room, hearing it live by a band on stage. And it's been crazy because we haven't really had that for, like, a whole year. Right. You know, there's been little things here or there, little outdoor performances, you know, driving concerts. But it's, like, we haven't had that same thing. And it's, like, I'm sure you can all, like, name experiences that were just, like, you know big impact to where you're in you know maybe you're just in a bar with 50 people and you're screaming your lungs out and everybody's sweaty and it's like you know you're in it together or you're in a stadium with a hundred thousand people and you're all chanting along and like that is an amazing way to experience music and to listen to music and it and that's something i don't think will change like i think that will still be there other than the fact that our world has kind of changed so you know, right. who knows how soon that will happen again and what exactly it will look like.
1: Yeah, it won't be a flip of a switch.
2: Right. It'll like be even, gradually
1: getting back to that.
2: Oh, yeah. But that's, I mean, that I feel like that when I think about music and stuff, because it's like this last year, you know, recording hasn't been that much different. People are recording, they're putting out records, but it's like, you know, going to a concert with people, that's totally different but that's Ryan. such a big part of how we experience music and like experiencing it with a group of people like that's not us in headphones in our room by ourselves but in a room with other people also experiencing it there's something like extra special about that
1: yeah i know mark has been really craving that time we went to see we are scientists in a tiny club and the dude in front of him just kept farting <laughs>
3: That was uh, Rogue Wave.
1: That was Rogue Wave. <laughs> well, you remember the right aspect. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Sounds like an I mean, incredible he just, moment.
1: He was just pumping him right at Mark. Yeah. We had to move to the back of the room to get away from this guy. Nice. <laughs> Sounds like fun. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you. Like the having not seen a show, having having not played for a live audience in a year is crazy. Yeah, we've done a lot of these like streaming sets. There's no interaction. There's no feedback. Yeah, you know what I mean. And it, it, it's it's so different, and it's 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 very bizarre. Yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah, so hopefully that'll hopefully that'll come back to some extent because I think we all would like that because we like we like hanging out with other people. You know, it's a fun right, thing. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, we're getting there. It's yeah. just gonna. That's going to take time. Yeah. And on that note, uh, we want to end by saying that if you are a musician who is looking for an audio engineer for a project, uh, we definitely highly recommend Jay. And you can find more information about him at altonaudio.com. It's A-L-T-O-N. And if you'd like to hear the albums of Dave Buker and the Historians that Jay has worked on, you can find our music through Spotify, Apple Music, or pretty much anywhere music is streamed, or at com. That's B-U-K-E-R. Thank you for listening to An Hour of Our Time. If you like what you heard, we encourage you to explore our catalog of over 100 episodes
3: and rate and review on your platform of choice. And if you have any comments or episode topic suggestions, contact us at an hour of our time podcast at gmail.com.